Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostics industry. My name is Omar Ford, and I'm the managing editor of MDDI. On this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Davide Manicero, CMO of Infection and Immune Diagnostics at Kyogen. And we're going to be talking about the new variants of COVID-19 that have been identified in South Africa and in the United Kingdom. We're going to be talking about Kyogen's PCR test and their ability to detect these new variants. So it's an exciting conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. And without further ado, let's begin. And thanks, Davide, for coming on to Let's Talk MedTech. I appreciate you really taking the time to speak with us today uh, about the company and the company's new test. I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about what we're seeing with COVID-19 now in terms of the new mutations and, and how they're having an impact on some of the popular diagnostic tests right now. Could you kind of go into that? Sure, Omar. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the on the podcast. I think what, what we are seeing now, what is happening is what we were expecting from the beginning. We were hoping it would not happen, but but it is the, the natural history of, uh, of a viral pandemic and particularly one led by an RNA virus. Um, early in the pandemic, we were observing mutation every few weeks that has increased in, in frequency. Um, and that was, was very much uh, um, expected. Um, Mutation are chance events, and, and those chances are driven by numbers. So the more transmission we, we see, the more um, it intensifies in terms from an epidemiological standpoint, the higher the chances, not only for mutation to occur, but what we are seeing today in those variants of interest is for mutation to accumulate. And that's where the problem begins when you start having 10, 15, 17, 22 mutation, as it is in the case of the three variants uh, that are mostly uh, of interest uh, um, over the last uh, few months, namely the, the UK, Brazil uh, um, variants and the South African one. I think what we need to be careful, particularly from a communication standpoint, uh, is in interpreting the reason why variants have become predominant. Because as much as it, it can be true that they become predominant for certain selective advantage, as it could be for the UK variant, where we have a higher affinity for the ACE2 receptor. Most of the time, what happens is simply a chance event, an epidemiologically driven chance event, what is known as a founder effect, simply um, being that the virus finds a way in a new population and establishes itself. So I think it's very important and, and it becomes very difficult to discern uh, between the two. Um, but uh, nevertheless, what has become key is, is that we need to establish uh, or scale up surveillance for variants uh, from, a, from a genomic standpoint. Sure, sure. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that surveillance and that process? Uh, you don't have to get too technical, but why is uh, surveillance so important when we, when we have viruses? Um, Obviously, because there's a lot of change, uh, that there can be a lot of change in them. But how important is surveillance right now for diagnostic companies or companies developing diagnostic solutions? Now, from a diagnostic standpoint, uh, obviously, what, what we want to ensure through surveillance is to pick up as early as possible 
any impact on sensitivity and, and therefore on the number of, uh, of false negative. Um, and, and that is clearly something that uh, we have been doing uh, from, from the very beginning. Now, the way you do this uh, is uh, in, in the era of this uh, pandemic, one thing that we should spin in a positive way is the way that the scientific community has reacted in terms of making available sequencing. And, and from the very early day, particularly through GIZAID, uh, um, the, the um, genomics uh, surveillance uh, database has been populated by, by sequences uh, um, in, in large number from, from the UK, but with, with other countries picking up. What we do on a, on a regular basis, uh, and we do at Kaigen for all of our uh, molecular assay, is on a fortnightly uh, basis is align our primer sequence uh, against the sequences that are being uploaded uh, every two weeks. And if we identify any mismatch, then we would investigate this uh, in, uh, in vitro. Uh, so that is the basis of, of surveillance. Of course, there is also a more passive surveillance, which is in the detection of false negative. Uh, um, and that is something that, that we, we uh, luckily, in terms of uh, uh, diagnostic um, uh, tools that are uh, out there, the, the drop in sensitivity is so far limited, but particularly those tests that are aiming and targeting the S gene were the, the major mutation of interest for the, the variants uh, um, that, that are being discussed. Uh, um, uh, might have a, a gene dropout. Uh, basically, uh, the, the target is no longer detected, and that can bring uh, a loss of, of sensitivity in some cases, although it is often mitigated by a multi-target approach. But those are the two situations where we can detect uh, um, a problem when a new variant arises. We try to anticipate this by genomic surveillance and by aligning in, in silica uh, with, with computational approaches, our sequencing to the one that are being uploaded from the surveillance system. And that kind of um, segues into my next question. Um, Kaigen has been very successful uh, with with its test and with COVID-19 testing uh, for, for uh, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, wanted to perhaps understand uh, a little bit about some of that success or or some of that effectiveness of, of Kaijin's tests that are now uh, available? Sure. I mean, as we communicated in a, in a recent press release, as of today, our um, molecular tests, so our array of PCR-based tests for SARS-CoV-2 uh, have not been affected in terms of sensitivity by any of the variant, or I would say by any of the mutation detected so far. And, and that has been uh, assessed uh, on a fortnightly basis through our uh, post-market surveillance uh, um, in, in the way that I, I described just, just now uh, in terms of alignment to the, the, the sequencing, but as well as a, as a proactive uh, uh, surveillance in terms of uh, um, detecting signal in, in the market in terms of false negative uh, um, and, and any other signal. Now, that is uh, post-market surveillance, but I think what is, what is very clear is that from the very beginning, and we started developing our, our assay very early on our Kaiastat platform in the, in the uh, pandemic. Uh, back in February, we were uh, collaborating with, with uh, centers in China to try to identify um, the best uh, targeting approach um, to maximize sensitivity and specificity. And, and it's the design of the assay which we aim to make as robust as possible, both in the way in which we select 
highly conserved region of the viral genome, um, the four regions that are less prone to, to mutation, as well as having multiple target approach, which again would be a risk mitigation from that point of view. Interesting, interesting. Do you think that Kaijin will need to develop new tests or make enhancements uh, to the test as time goes on? Uh, because we could potentially see new strains or new mutations? Absolutely. I think it's a very complex discussion on, on the overarching need of adapting and evolving the current uh, assays. Well, let, let's be clear that the intended use of any SARS-CoV-2 diagnostics in the market is to detect patient individual with the disease. And therefore, the, the uh, aim is to maximize and maintain sensitivity. Now, if that sensitivity is affected and it's not the case in, in collagen assay, then that needs to be addressed. The other question is whether we want to discern in that detection um, the subset of the variant of interest. And that is a, it's a very difficult question to answer. As of today, from a clinical standpoint, there is no really difference in the management of the variants. From the clinical management of the patient with the UK versus South African variant, uh, or versus one of the, the, the predominant earlier variant, is no different. However, from a surveillance point of view, so not from a, a, a diagnostic one, but from a surveillance point of view, there is certainly an interest um, to identify and discern those, those variants. And the interest is from a public health perspective, from a control perspective, uh, and we see countries putting up measure on the basis of that surveillance. There are two ways of doing that surveillance, and, and Kajen has been, from the, the early months of the epidemic, uh, been involved in, in developing solutions for, for genomic surveillance, particularly uh, in terms of, of supporting sequencing. Why sequencing is so important? Because sequencing doesn't aim at the particular variant. It's a sort of uh, overarching surveillance approach which allows you to monitor any emerging uh, mutation. And therefore, it, it is considered and should be considered the baseline requirement for, for surveillance. As Kajen, back in August of, of last year, we launched the Kayasek SARS-CoV-2, uh, which is a solution for, for monitoring sequence drift of, of the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and it comes as a, as a support of next generation sequencing where the bottleneck remains the library preparation. And that, that is what Kayasek uh, SARS-CoV-2 primer panel does by facilitating easing the process uh, of, of preparing the library to be sequenced uh, by allowing not only higher turnaround, uh, uh, sorry, lower turnaround time, as well as the ability to, um, to maximize the efficacy, particularly on lower uh, viral load sample. So we've been engaged from the very beginning in, in what I consider, we consider the mainstay of, of, of surveillance. However, questions are arising whether from a surveillance point of view and not a diagnostic, uh, we should uh, make available as well uh, PCR-based uh, uh, genotyping uh, um, solution. In other words, PCR that would target uh, um, a single mutation uh, able to therefore to identify uh, the BB117 uh, lineage, whether it is the, the V1 or V2 uh, variants for, uh, um, for the, the South African or the UK one. Now, in this case, this is something we are carefully evaluating. 
And the reason we are really giving some thought about this and assessing from a feasibility point of view is because this is a rapidly evolving uh, evolutionary environment, uh, uh, Omar. We, we want to be ready that in a way that in two months' time, the variant of interest might be different from the one we are seeing today. And therefore, you know, any development in terms of PCR-based genotyping needs to be uh, given a lot of thought and in, from a point of view of what we are going to target and, and for which purpose. This is an incredible conversation we're having with Davide, but want to take just one moment to speak a little bit about MDDI. MDDI is a resource exclusively for original equipment manufacturers of medical devices and in vitro diagnostic products. The goal of MDDI is to help industry professionals develop, design, and manufacture medical products that comply with complex and demanding regulations and market requirements. MDDI is also home to the QMED directory, the only directory of pre-qualified suppliers and service providers to the medical device and diagnostics industry. And on top of that, MDDI is chock full of content about the medtech and diagnostics industry. The comings and goings, the deals, the agreements, the acquisitions, the approvals, all on MDDI. So here's where you can find it. You can find all this information on MDDIonline.com. And if you want to access the QMED directory, it can be found at directory.qmed.com. Now back to our conversation with Davide. Amazing that you said that because I almost feel like the goalpost is going to keep moving. And how do you cons deal with a goalpost that's consistently moving and with the potential for, for new variants um, of the virus? That, that that's very that, that's very interesting, and, and I, I'm sure it really really causes some some provocation of thought. Uh, what I want to kind of talk a little bit about now is when we look at the landscape of tests uh, for for coronavirus COVID nineteen. When we look at that landscape, and we'll take last March as our starting point. What have you seen in the evolution of these tests? Uh, just if you can make an overall kind of uh, give an overall analysis of it. What have you seen in the evolution of these tests and where do you think we are along the testing curve for COVID-19 when we take last March as a starting point to where we are right now? Sure, I think we, we have moved uh, quite a, some, some way from, from March of last year. Lastly enough uh, uh, for for all of us, and I think there are two aspects to to analyze here. One is is volume or, or capacity, and that uh, has seen a tremendous uh, improvement. Uh, um, and I'll give you some example. I mean, I'm I'm based in London, UK. Um, I think back in April last year, capacity was in the low twenty thousand per day. Um, we are now around seven hundred to eight hundred thousand capacity. Um, per day so that that is a huge uh, uh, increase in 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 ability to to test um but i think most importantly uh, in addition to this this evolution in terms of volume is the spectrum the array of assay that now we have available which really fit different clinical and public health need i mean if you if you just look at pcr we have everything ranging from point of care to syndromic low plex, 
all the way to high throughput uh, PCR, right? Um, and that really fits the purpose of the type of public health response or clinical uh, response that, that one needs to mount. But even better, we have antigen uh, tests, particularly those on, uh, on uh, uh, lateral flow or, or that are adapted to, to point of care, um, as well as serology, which again can bring the response closer to, to the community. So I think in terms of volume and test availability, uh, we, we are on a level that is acceptable in terms of the response that we need to mount. However, there are two points is how much testing is enough? Because one thing is to have the capacity, the other is how much do I need to test? And that's a difficult question because first of all, the pandemic is not homogeneous. It's heterogeneous from a from an epidemiological point of view. I mean, you have pockets of outbreaks, uh, although these pockets tend to be very large now, still are pockets uh, uh, of outbreaks. And there is a number which I think um, it's, it's really important, it's not often debated, uh, um, probably because we don't have yet a target, but is the percentage of positivity out of the test, right? And you see the percentage uh, ranging from 2% to the 30s, 35%. Um, we don't know exactly what is the target from a control point of view of, of the number of tests that need to, to be positive in order to assess whether we are testing enough. But it's very clear that there is a huge difference between a 2% positivity, meaning that you know 98% will be negative and therefore we are pretty confident we are testing enough to find a, a, a few cases to a 30% positivity, um, which, which probably indicates that the baseline, that the denominator of testing is still pretty, pretty low. So these are indicators that should really judge how testing should be uh, scaled up, given that the capacity is there. Um, and the other point, I think, is understanding how to utilize in synergy this test. And I think uh, it, it, I, I seen a, a growing tendency to, to, to create this dichotomy between, for example, antigen and PCR test. And I think we shouldn't view it like that. They are synergetic in terms of control. We see the antigen test uh, um, given the, the, the lower sensitivity, but uh, ability to be scaled up uh, and, and, and ease of use uh, to be able to be utilized at community level for rapid uh, screening, uh, in response, for example, to contact tracing uh, or to community level outbreak control, while PCR remains uh, the, the gold standard from a clinical standpoint uh, and can really be used, as, as you can refer to CDC guidelines, in synergy to, to antigen testing. So I don't think uh, there is a better test. What I think is there is a better approach in terms of synergizing the, the type of test as well as identifying when to scale up uh, testing volumes in response to to the local epidemiology. Hmm. No, and that that makes sense. That makes sense. Want to kind of ask a, a a tricky question now, and I'll, I'll admit up front that it's it's tricky. But uh, are there any insights that um, Kaijin has perhaps um, discerned or, or found out about these variants through testing? Is, are there any further insights you can provide? Because I know a lot of people have questions and I know some people outside of the industry listened to the podcast and they might be and they might just have some some questions just about this variant and and uh, are these variants and, and what they really mean in the context 
uh, of the overall virus. Uh, are there any further learnings, uh, any uh, things that you could point to and maybe talk about? Right. So from a diagnostic standpoint, I, I don't think there are there are huge learning uh, points from this. I mean, what, what we are learning so far, uh, and I don't talk only about Kaijin, but across the industry, is that so far these variants, uh, although they demonstrate as well a mutation beyond the S gene, really the focus of those of those mutations that, that have affected uh, uh, from a point of view of transmissibility, from a point of view of, of, of uh, S gene dropout, are focused on, on the, around the spike, uh, the spike uh, uh, gene. Um, and therefore, it looks like from an evolutionary point of view, that's the genomic uh, area where we need to pay, to pay attention, uh, both from a diagnostic point of view, but obviously with, with even more dramatic uh, uh, implication from an from uh, immune evasion point of view in response to monoclonal antibodies or, or vaccination. So I think that that is a, is a, a lesson um, that, that we can take from this point forward in, in terms of where we, we, we should be focusing. The other point, which is not really a lesson, but is a, a, an ongoing discussion, we feel that, um, you know, looking at the three variants that are um, raising uh, the, the, the discussion at the moment, uh, we should be careful just to embark simply on in surveillance, monitoring and response for these three variants. Uh, we feel that globally we need a very capillary, thorough genomic surveillance to be ready for what you call the moving uh, goalpost and, and, and just be ready for what, what, what is uh, about to come. In the months, in the months that will follow, and I think this is very important to to hold uh, um, as a, as a as a key uh, response component, uh, not only for us but uh, for manufacturers, but for the entire public health community, um, because it's it's a highly unpredictable uh, virus from from a point of view of of the way it's behaving, and all of a sudden we started to see this accumulation of mutation uh, um, around October. We did not see them before. So I think um, it's really important to maintain that baseline of genomic surveillance. We know that the UK um, was, was one of the countries that has led from that point of view. Several other countries, including the US, Germany, Denmark, uh, several European countries are now scaling up sequencing uh, uh, capacity. And I think that is, is a key intervention that we are very eager to see um, expanding uh, because it will be informative uh, for us as well to ensure that that we maintain uh, an adequate uh, effectiveness to, in, in, in our test. Well, David, thanks for coming on to Let's Talk MedTech. Um, very interesting conversation. Uh, appreciate you coming by and really shedding some light on what Kaijin is doing to test for these new variants and also shedding light on the variants as well. Thank you, thank you very much, Omar, for having me. Sure, no problem, thanks. Thank you.